This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Jamal Khashoggi was a leading critic of Saudi Arabia's current leadership, sharing his views via platforms, including opinion columns in the Washington Post, that began over a year ago and were translated into Arabic. His journalism career included stints in Afghanistan, where he met and followed the rise of al-Qaeda chief Osama bin Laden in the late 80s, and he was the deputy editor-in-chief of the Saudi Arabian newspaper Arab News at the time of the 9-11 attacks on the United States, which ultimately made him both a valuable source for foreign journalists seeking to understand what drove some Muslims into such actions, but also put him on the radar for multiple authoritarian regimes that didn't always love the way in which he revealed connections needling into foreign governments and central governments. In the 2000s, Jamal was actually fired twice from his post as editor-in-chief of a Saudi Arabian Al-Watan daily newspaper, which, under his leadership, ran stories, editorials, and cartoons critical of extremists and the way in which countries around the world enforce religious values. That sense of dissidence, that sense of speaking out and calling out other regimes may seem commonplace and, in fact, downright patriotic in the United States, but around the world, it was met with a grimacing attitude. And that grimace stalled just a few weeks ago. Jamal Khashoggi arrived at a Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, while his wife waited outside for Jamal to go in, get some marriage paperwork resolved, and then come out. Five hours later, Jamal never came. In fact, as reports would later reveal, Jamal was actually met by 15 Saudi-designated operatives who started to interrogate him, tried to maybe even rendition him, but ultimately was met with a gruesome and grotesque death that has similarly been reported to have been met by tools including bone saws. Since that point, this crime has riveted the entire world, and immediately after the crime was reported on, the, the White House, their immediate inclination through the words of the president was to give the king of Saudi Arabia the benefit of the doubt, recognize that these are some details that maybe the king didn't know of, and move on from there, especially given the United States and Saudi Arabia's very keen strategic, economic, oil, and geopolitical interests. But as the days unfurled, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times actually approached the president again, and this time it was clear that the president was not only a little bit more cagey, but was more willing to start to flex a specific air of concern around the situation, especially as he saw more citizen outcry within the United States, speaking about the Trump White House's record on free speech, on dissent, and on journalism broadly. Then, fast forward to just this morning, the prime minister of Turkey, again, the as, as Jamal Khashoggi was arriving in Istanbul, Turkey, went on the record in remarks and said that he's looking for more answers, doesn't trust the Saudi Arabian story, and is immensely concerned about how Jamal met his maker. Now, cut against this entire backdrop, a relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, one that has constantly flourished economically, but been a little underrepresented when it comes to a pure and pristine track record around human rights, around dissent, and the very prospect of democratic values that the U.S. aims to export day in and day out. 
at the arrival of the current king of Saudi Arabia, colloquially referred to as MBS, he was seen and has been embraced as a reformer. In fact, just within the last year, women who didn't previously have the right to drive in Saudi Arabia now do. Moreover, MBS has been noted to want to create a more progressive posture for Saudi Arabia so that way it can fully embrace the Western values and the Western worlds in which it does such incredibly and inextricably tied trading with. But against the backdrop of Jamal Khashoggi's death, it leaves us to wonder, how can the United States continue to stand by democratic values and the pillar of the First Amendment and free speech when it doesn't even come to the swift denouncement of challenges to those values and that First Amendment in other countries abroad that it's constantly doing business with? Joining us today to unpack these questions are Timothy Berger, a seasoned veteran and journalist and writer contributing to outlets including the LA Times, Vice Media, Roll Call, Time, Bloomberg, and the chief executive of Pung Concepts, a consulting company, and Daniel Lipman, a reporter for Politico and co-author of Politico's famed daily newsletter, Politico Playbook. Daniel and Tim, thanks for joining American Enough. Great to be with Thanks for having us. So I want to start with you, Tim, um, specifically on the way the president has framed um, this broader situation and, and his general reaction. We've definitely definitely seen some ebbing and flowing in the position the White House has staked. And specifically about a weekend ago um, on 60 Minutes, uh, the president cited countless arms deals and jobs being at stake um, if the United States were to rock the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but it seems that this instance and the concern around a journalist that had dissenting views from the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian kingdom is devoid from a conversation of jobs or economic gain. Is there a rationale that, that as you as a journalist can reconcile with what the Trump White House is saying when you put an emphasis on prioritizing economic gain above core democratic values? Or does that undercut the very premise of being a journalist and being an open society from your perspective? Well, the, the crime, as you aptly describe it, of, of what became of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, by the way, who many of us journalists in Washington have known at one time or another, since he was, in fact, the spokesperson for the Saudi embassy, a media counselor back um, in the 2000s. But um, that, the, the, that crime is, is so horrendous. It certainly, at first blush, you know, it's hard to think of how there could be any uh, hemming and hawing or waffling on, on the issue. Um, of course, it does take place against the backdrop of complex and important relations. And of course, President Trump is known as a gut player. And um, he, he goes by his gut, and that gut changes a lot. Although he, will, he generally sort of says it's always the same, it certainly results in statements that can be wildly inconsistent with each other, and you just have to see what ultimately happens. Now, uh, it's been refreshing to see him come around to some suspicion of the early Saudi versions of events, and even the current one, where they're essentially saying he beat himself to death. Um, and it's been refreshing to see that. It's also a fact, as he says, that if the U.S. doesn't go through with that $110 billion uh, weapons sale, another country like Russia, is it, is, it, is it a stretch to think that Russia wouldn't step in and sell them, you know, a bunch of MiGs and whatever else they were trying to buy? So there, it, it's it's both simple and complex, and 
I'll, I have an idea of where things may head that I can come back to after we continue the conversation a bit. And and actually, just that's a fascinating insight that Jamal Khashoggi um, is no stranger to the Washington press corps and, and seasoned journalists within the United States. You mentioned that um, he at one point in time actually served as a spokesperson um, for for a consulate or sorry for an embassy within D.C. Can you walk us through a little bit um, about how you see the the distinction between being um, someone that speaks on behalf of a country through a role like that versus someone who um, is actually a journalist that has a responsibility to shed light and truth on the events and happenings and actions of a country or a central government. Um, can you readily pivot from one to the other? Is is some element of him wearing one hat at one point in time and then this other more dissident hat of a journalist at another moment in time, did that perhaps create a storm of more intrigue and focus on Jamal more so than other journalists? Or is that maybe an unfair uh, characterization of Jamal Khashoggi's background? I think that's a well-put question. I think the fact that he has at times been very much an insider, both through his personal relationships, somewhat through his family, because his 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 uncle was Adnan Khashoggi, the famed arms dealer, um, and then also through his, you know, going through the revolving door of at times serving the government and uh, at other times, most of the time, really being a journalist. Um, that happens less often in the West than in the U.S., but it's not unheard of. Uh, and uh, it's w- what is less common in the West is for people to go back and forth. Uh, that often. But I think that that is the fact that he has been an insider at the heart of, you know, Saudi policy and government representation is part of what made his critiques sting so much to MBS, who thinks that clearly he's an impetuous and tyrannical hypocrite of a ruler. And so it particularly stung him to hear Jamal criticizing what he was doing. The irony, of course, is Frankly, I don't think any of us knew what Jamal was saying about the kingdom until uh, until the, until his own countrymen slaughtered him. And by the that, way, that, one that's other, absolutely it, correct. No, yeah, go well, ahead. Well, and now everyone knows what he was saying. Just the other quick point that makes it extra tragic and horrendous is the irony that Jamal was trying to he was living within Saudi law and rules. At the very moment he went in to the Saudi consulate to get paperwork relating to his divorce, he was actually bowing down to the laws of Saudi Arabia in doing that. Right? He was not thumbing his nose in any way at them. From uh, he was, you know, having his criticisms, but also abiding by their laws at the time that they slaughtered him. That that's a fascinating insight, and I think the reason why this conversation is so um, particularly. Uh, enticing for the United States, well beyond just the the grotesque you know display of of human rights violations um, given his death or in the incident of his death, is exactly what you said, Tim. Is that that rule of law? And Daniel, I wanted to ask you that as you think about rule of law and the respect for it in this administration, one thing that's been a, another new word, kind of in the same way that Tim said that maybe many of us weren't sure what Jamal Khashoggi was actually saying about the Saudi prince and kingdom until very recently. Another new term that um, only recently has come on uh, 
into the American lexicon is the emoluments clause. And this is a critique that this administration and specifically this president and his family are benefiting immensely from their private sector dealings across the world and the United States and leveraging their seat of power to continue to goose um, along those profits and that, that private wealth um, being amassed. The reason that I frame it that way is because some have said, you know, rightly or wrongly, that the Trump administration seems hesitant to act so aggressively on Saudi Arabia uh, and the kingdom because there are a number of potential factors at play. Um, put aside the, the element of the countless arms deals and the sort of jobs that President Trump uh, mentioned on 60 Minutes, the other component is the relationship that him and his son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner purportedly have in terms of backing MBS and close uh, actual private holdings that they might have in and around the kingdom. So from your perspective, Daniel, how much of this administration's response is actually maybe a direct reply to the core tenets of what the White House thinks is their responsibility when it comes to jobs and protecting the homeland versus this sort of lurking, ongoing critique of the Trump family swirling around Washington, D.C., that they're maybe always in it for their own wealth, and they'll prioritize anything for that, irrespective of the rule of law that might be at question. I think it's a combination of the two. Uh, President Trump has always in office seemed to believe, you know, dictators and what they say. Look at what he has, you know, talked about Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, uh, MBS. And so he prioritizes uh, what they think about things instead of what, you know, his own intelligence agencies and the media, uh, they, you know, but instead of their view. And so I think it's you know, a mix of all the factors. And, uh, you know, there have been reports that how much money the Trump Hotel makes from uh, different uh, governments, because, uh, you know, the New York Times had a story about how, uh, you know, the, one of the Trump properties in New York, it would have been in the red unless it was for Saudi money that had you know, come with a uh, UN visit, you know, Saudis sent a lot of people to stay there. And so I think that's, you know, a factor. And unfortunately, Trump has not, you know, distanced himself completely from the from his own business and his uh, government ties. If they had said, we're not going to take any foreign uh, government or foreign visitor business, uh, then I think he would have gotten uh, much more applause and plaudits for doing that. And now every, every decision he makes on foreign policy is going to be through the lens of, does this help his own business or does it hurt it? Uh, and so I think that, you know, that always plays a role with Trump and, and Jared Kushner. He has his own uh, financial ties that he almost seems to want to keep good ties with MBS, partly maybe because he wants to do business afterwards. He was at a CNN forum yesterday, his only public TV interview, live TV interview for, you know, the entire time in office as a senior advisor. Uh, and he said, you know, that um, they will decide what they want to believe from the various investigations. And so it doesn't seem like you know, he didn't say many nice things, nice words about Jamal's death. Yeah, and you're of course referring to the um, CNN interview that aired uh, just this week with Van Jones. I I'm curious when you think about um, these disparate heads of state, uh, 
maintaining different storylines. You know, certainly, I think many, whether you're in his base or not, might sympathize with a leader of the free world at first giving a, you know, a benefit of the doubt pass to another leader as a sort of counterpart, giving them a chance to to exchange views. But it seems that both the story and position of this White House um, has continued to to evolve, uh, even if with tiny nuance. The Saudi Arabian government um, has, uh, you know, recently uh, was speaking just this morning and got a standing ovation despite inquiries into Khashoggi, um, kind of maintaining this concept of them acting within the character of what people expect Saudi Arabia to act like. And as we mentioned at the top, just this morning, um, the head of, of um, uh, Turkey actually denounced the actions of the Saudi Arabian government. You've got dueling stories, dueling oratories among different heads of state. And one common thread throughout is not just uh, something that we see increasingly in the U.S., but across the world of an inconsistent fact pattern. Um, you can call them lies. You can call them alternative facts in the, you know, in the namesake of Kellyanne Conway. But it does seem that folks are willing to make their own truths and put them out there, even if they collide with other truths. As journalists, and I and I ask this both through the lens of this case, but also just personally as as um, you know seasoned vets in this game, I'm curious, Daniel, what you feel about reporting on this administration when it seems that there are constant threads that are moving in real time. Does that affect the way that you report? Does it affect the way that you see your identity um, as a as a as a journalist personally when it comes to uncovering truth? And and Tim, I'd love you to jump in after Daniel goes as well. I think that, you know, I've always, I haven't changed how I report and how I think about my job, uh, even with Trump's attacks on the media. And so it doesn't, you know, I try to divorce whatever I think about politics and, you know, our leaders in power versus my responsibilities as a journalist. So that does not change. You still need to confirm your stories, your tips, your scoops, uh, and you want to hold power accountable. And so when there's a Democratic administration, I'm going to do the exact same. But it does seem like there are many more uh, tips to chase down that are negative uh, towards Trump and his administration. There's unprecedented controversies and scandals with cabinet members. Every single one seems to uh, have things uh, in their past or in their job that uh, we have investigated. Yeah, well, I think, as Daniel said, I think it's kind of almost a return to basics. You know, remember that uh, checking your story, following it through, be as accurate as you can possibly be. Sometimes uh, just waiting till you get full verification, just doing your homework, I think, is, is more important than ever. Um, and it's, you know, when you, when you have um, an administration that is openly calling the press the enemy of the people, um, it's just a reminder to, to do your job well. Now the other thing to the other thing to remember is that um, this Jamal Khashoggi uh, tragedy reminds us how good we do have it in the U.S. I think we all may have talked about this on a previous uh, episode of the pod, but I mean uh, we have it pretty good in the U.S. We may have name calling by the commander in chief and by people we're doing stories about, but really our government is not slaughtering us like it's happening obviously, to Jamal and also happening in Russia and, and lots of other places. 
that that's a really important reminder because actually um, just uh, this past Saturday, uh, Fox News host Tucker Carlson um, actually said that the the media, pointing back to the media on his very set from a media outlet, um, is actually conveying moral superiority here. And they're playing a game by acting outraged at the murder of Khashoggi um, and that actually uh, consistent with what you just said, Tim, that the Saudis are playing within their character, that they're acting like what we would assume the Saudi Arabian government would act like um, in the same way that we would uh, assume the the Russian government, um, the Venezuelan government, or other sort of uh, central authorities that tend to squash free speech when it is not convenient for them. Um, and, And I'm curious, when you take a look at those elements of working within those lines um, and that this sense of expectation, does that then mean that the United States, uh, to your point, Tim, needs to be calling out those other actors when it doesn't see a consistent moral uh, parallel between the way it wants to do business and, and the, frankly, much safer state of play here in the United States? I'm curious with that because specifically if if this is how the Saudis are operating, should the United States then not expect to be flummoxed when it hears news like this and simply just expect to go along with it if it makes you know our gas relatively cheap because of our oil relationship or jobs increase in the military defense complex? Is that something that we should just come to terms with? Well, I think my buddy Tucker was, was really right in, in the sense I mean, uh, that, that the Saudis are playing within their character. The difference here, because uh, this absolutely happens all the time within their borders. There's not much doubt about that. And by the way, um, Turkey has lots of journalists imprisoned for doing their job by all appearances. And they do not uh, take kindly to Kurdish separatists. And um, Kurd- Turkey is a very rough country for dissidents, for journalists, and that sort of thing. So the difference here, though, is that Saudi Arabia didn't do this within their own borders. Note that they were trying to lure Jamal back, right? Uh, And who knows what would have happened to him there, perhaps the same thing, Um, or perhaps merely house arrest, or who knows, maybe they were going to sing Kumbaya. But uh, what they did here was take advantage of, uh, they used, within Turkish borders, so they gravely offended Erdogan's sense of sovereignty, right? And But they also do it under color of UN law, which protects embassies. Uh, international law sort of and diplomatic law dictates you can pretty much do whatever you want in your embassy, and it's an extension of the soil of your own country. So they completely took advantage of the, of the safe zone that embassies provide and um, violated Erdogan's sovereignty. He's, you know, so that that's the big difference. They sort of exported their everyday conduct to another country, and that's why Erdogan. Well, that's a big part of why Erdogan is quite this incensed. Now, of course, the uh, the issue of, and maybe this gets to one of the possible end games here. Um, but the the issue is, um, what do we do? You know, of course, we have to express outrage at such a grotesque. Um, action by a government. I mean, how calculated is it? They send two private jets reportedly owned by a company close to the royals. They've got all these government personnel, the doc, the, the autopsy doctor. You know, they've got all these. I mean, this is a state-sponsored event, right? Um, so, you know, we have to be outraged by that kind of conduct exported beyond a state's borders. Um, but some of the realpolitik 
does exist of, well, they're going to get billions of dollars of weapons from somewhere. Um, these contracts are in place. I'm not at all whitewashing the conduct because I'm as outraged as anybody. I think what probably has happened is an overreach by MBS. And I think one of the potential end games is, um, and I know some very smart experts who have uh, thought about this and have spoken of this, thinking that MBS has his foreign portfolio stripped and he becomes merely a domestic figure within Saudi Arabia, which would be playing to type, as Tucker says, right? Um, but then someone else is in charge of their interface with the outside world. Because it does sort of seem like as long as MBS, uh, his status remains unchanged, you really, how does anyone sort of look him in the eye? Um, there's been different and this stories is a guy about that, Mike. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, but then, I was just saying no, that this ahead, is Daniel, a guy please. who, uh, this is, MBS is a guy that, you know, he's in his early 30s, and Trump said that he and Jared are kind of similar because they're both young princes. Uh, and, you know, MBS has not had a great track record of the last year in that he kidnapped the Lebanese prime minister, took him back to Saudi Arabia where he beat him and then, uh, you know, sent him back to Lebanon because they couldn't figure out what to do with him. And then he also has this war in Le Yemen that is attracting so much international attention because of the uh, gross war crimes and, you know, killing of thousands of civilians. And that war is in a stalemate, has, you know, no end in sight. And then you have this incident. Uh, and so it doesn't seem like MBS is doing as good of a job as, you know, Saudis expect. And what's also interesting, we might not have caught this, is but that um, Jamal uh, was, you know, treated poorly in the uh, Saudi media and among some aspects of it before they admitted that he was killed. And once he was admitted, uh, once they, you know, fessed up a little bit, then now he's being venerated by different parts of the media and saying, you know, he's a national hero and all that. And so they're, you know, try, they're trying to cover uh, their crimes up by saying that, you know, he was uh, a person who, you know, stood up for things. And so kind of ironic that now they say, now the media says that in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's a great point, and I think Daniel, not, not to I, I hate to politicize the the death of anyone, um, but something that is that makes this particularly relevant for the United States right now is actually in terms of of something that that you scooped uh, just this week, I believe, for Politico when it comes to how this White House views um, the upcoming elections. Of course, we all know that within the United States, November sixth marks the midterm elections. Um, you know, debated content uh, hotly as to whether this will be a wave for Democrats um, as midterm elections are often change elections. Um, but you actually correctly pointed out that the Trump position is that the 2020 cycle, you know, when you have a presidential candidate at the top of the ballot, um, is the real election to be mindful of. And I think what makes this uh, conversation around, whether it's the media poking their head up, whether it's, you know, sanctioned action under UN law and, and war crime law, um, or if it's it's none of those things, there is one resounding sentiment that is swirling around our, our, our national discourse as we go into the midterm collections, uh, elections, and that is the respect of free speech, the respect of this conversation that we can have in this country. And Tim, to your point, I, I completely understand 
what you're saying in terms of making sure that we baseline where we are and how lucky we are in the United States vis-a-vis other countries. Um, but Daniel, I wanted to ask you specifically, as as you think about going into elections um, and we think about this Arab uh region of the world where state-run narratives dominate the public psyche and you know a large majority of the population falls victims to false narratives, what do you think either the GOP or the Democratic Party or just this administration sees its responsibility is in terms of exporting the appropriate and unshakable democratic tenets of this country to other countries as part of you know an election cycle as a part of their governing responsibilities do they are they really seeing it that way or is this just something that's going to be debated briefly and then it'll wash out and and the elections will happen and a new congress will you know be sworn in i think that it's a you know case where uh Trump has never had that much respect for democratic values, and so he, you know, isn't going to basically transmit that respect to Americans. And so I think we're in a scenario where, you know, he's talking about yesterday. He said he's proud to be a nationalist. He wants to be called a nationalist, and you know, the globalists are evil. And so that is strong words and, and frankly, concerning rhetoric for you know the leader of the free world and you know we're not we're not supposed to have nationalists and remember how well that ended last time uh, and so you know Trump himself he's calling for a he's saying he's going to pass a tax cut uh, before the midterms when that's just not within his power and the you know congress is adjourned until mid November and so he's he's offering this false promise to voters where there's just no scenario uh, for that to get passed. Yeah, he said they would vote, on, among other things, didn't he say they would vote on it later? <laughs> Pass it now, vote yeah, on it later, like... or some odd thing <laughs> like that. Yeah, and, and I mean, those are those are great points across the board because you both have a conversation around, you know, how much we're going to respect um, engaging the open world. But then, of course, we have a conversation at home as to uh, how much we respect uh, the the values that have built up this world, you know, and you know, I would be remiss if we didn't at least applaud that there are pockets w- within the the Arab world um, that embody the spirit of the Arab Spring. Uh, Qatar's government, for example, continues to support international news coverage, even in Tunisia um, and Kuwait, sort of the the birthplaces of the Arab Spring. Um, press is considered at least partly free, um, even though the the media tends to focus on on domestic issues as opposed to issues faced by the greater Arab world. Um, That being said, there is a hesitation to provide a platform for journalists from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, from Yemen. And I I, I kind of wonder, um, from, from both of your perspectives, how you see the commentary around what we do around the world as being a new foreign policy doctrine for this administration, um, or if it is, you know, Tim, as you pointed out, just a president who shoots from the hip and plays from his gut. Um, and this is a specific uh, kind of, of thought process that was you know, put, to, put precisely and quite bluntly uh, by the dean of Johns Hopkins' School of, of Advanced International Studies, SICE. Um, the dean, Vali Nassar, said actually that this seems to be a drastic break from American practice, that it signals a very different foreign policy, that it does not hold governments accountable for things that are outside normal, legal, or ethical parameters. Um, is that 
is what you're seeing right now, Tim, an actual distinction of a Trump or a formulation rather of a Trump doctrine, um, or is this just something that is being shot from the hip and will will quickly come back to you know normal conversation of of you know the Mueller investigation and things like that within about seventy two to ninety six hours? Well, this does seem to be persisting partly because of the drip drip of of details coming out and what Turkey's doing, but I I, I do think that you know this is um, a bright line for some people. What that means, will will we don't know yet. Um, and the Trump at at what point at what point do we say well, uh, shooting from the hip is the doctrine, right? I think my friends at Time Magazine wrote that it's the dare me doctrine or something like that. Um, but um, unifying this question and the previous one, I think one thing to watch will be say Senator Lindsey Graham, who certainly um, is no stranger to news cameras and microphones. And he sort of laid down in the tracks um, uh, for, for Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation. And he has also been just about as equally outraged um, about the Jamal Khashoggi matter. And long before President Trump had started to express concern, you know, early on when he was wanting to give MBS the benefit of the doubt, Senator Graham was pretty scathing about the situation and demanding action. Now, let's see if Senator Graham uses the tremendous power that a single senator has to force action, which includes, you know, real filibusters, amendments to bills, amendments to must-pass bills. I mean, Senator Graham has real power to do something about this. So let's see if he uses that in this case. to try and, um, you know, if President Trump is reluctant to do certain things in in response to the Khashoggi tragedy, um, let's see if Senator Graham actually tries to force action. And uh, I think that'll be one of the ways to see, you know, what the outrage level is among um, the the president's own party. I think that will be a a bit of a a lesson going forward. You know, um, the the conversation around what what they actually do not they sit what they say um has been a resonant theme among all journalists or really even just citizens that want to look at how the Trump administration may be affecting um their lives uh foreign policy and frankly US domestic policy uh Daniel it's your um own outlet Politico in in their playbook a newsletter this morning actually shared a a snippet from the Washington Post um uh citing that the CIA director, Gina Haspel, um, actually departed for Turkey um, amid sort of this international uproar, which, you know, some might suggest that the arrival of the CIA director means that the U.S. intel community, which is certainly, you know, steered at the behest of the president of the United States, is there to assess information that the Turks might have on the killing. Um, I'm curious, both from the lens of the Khashoggi murder, but also as a a you know journalist that's covering this administration, that's covering the happenings of D.C. How how important is it for us um, and even you know me through this podcast to to not necessarily get caught up in the day to day TikTok of what the president says when he's you know stepping onto Marine One and gaggling versus him actually trying to um, make concerted efforts to deal with this behind the scenes. I think we have to pay attention to both because both are equally important. There's not a a huge grand strategy sometimes with how the president acts. You know, our friend Dina Powell, uh, she worked on this national security strategy 
Uh, and a lot of the nationalists in the White House, they did not like that. Um, and I don't get the sense that uh, Trump is reading the national security strategy every uh, day and saying, well, how do we, um, you know, evaluate what we're going to do on this versus, uh, you know, what it says in this handbook. And so, um, and I think, but I also think that what the day-to-day is, that makes up what this presidency is all about. And so we can't turn our heads away and say, well, I'm not going to read the tweets or I'm not going to, you know, follow every uh, twist and turn. You don't have to, you know, read every White House poll report, but it's important for Americans not to, you know, to not to disengage and think to themselves, well, you know, Trump is just a uh, in a dumpster fire. I don't want to, it depresses me when I pay attention to that news. So that is a resignation of defeat that, you know, no matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, it's not good in any presidency. Yeah, that, that that is absolutely right. And I think that those are those are very astute words in terms of, um, you know, wh- whether you're in the game as a, a politician, as a staffer um, or as a journalist or you're just, you know, a casual citizen observer. It is important to both track the words and rhetoric as well as the actions of that governing. And I think that, you know, Tim, you mentioned um, something very interesting when it comes to um, taking a look at how different members of Congress are acting on this issue and broadly how they're acting when it comes to engaging um, and checking Trump. Um, I, I want to go to something uh, that is particularly um, sort of derivative of this conversation when it comes to how other states and other state electeds engaged. Um, you recently, you know, you wrote earlier this year um, for the L.A. Times that uh, there are very contentious races going on up and down the West Coast, um, up and down the ballot, even beyond just the, the gubernatorial race um, that's drawing a lot of money. And some would say that uh, when it comes to First Amendment challenges, when it comes to basic considerations like the equal treatment of, of individuals, um, you know, transgender individuals or those that are, are immigrants, um, and any multitude of, of maybe misgivings that people see within this Trump administration, many people look to California or look to Washington state or are looking to, you know, Beto in Texas as these sort of countervailing forces that might offset this type of behavior. And yet, Tim, when you combine that with, you know, Daniel's reporting um, in terms of Trump seeing uh, this as the, you know, just a casual election, 2020 is the real game in town. How does that square from your position? Do do you feel that we're going to be seeing in the run up between now and Election Day more and more individuals that are trying to um, run against the Trump narrative, run as a need to create an antidote to this type of, you know, debasement of the U.S. Constitution? Or are individuals like you report? in California going to focus on the pocketbook issues of their state and keep Trump sort of out of it or as a sideshow? It's, it, I think, and I want to hear what Daniel thinks, but I think it's going to completely vary from election to election. You know, people, uh, all politics is local, of course, but uh, the president is um, certainly foremost in a lot of people's minds, but they have to speak to to their localities. So in, a, in an area where anti-Trump strikes a, is you know believed to strike a chord people will certainly ring that bell but then other areas where it might be a little more purple or a little more purple leaning red um you know people certainly aren't going to be doing that so you're going to have i think there i think politico wrote or someone wrote that there's one republican who's campaigning against trump um there's obviously a lot of democrats who are doing that including beto o'rourke but very few people give beto o'rourke 
in fact, other than his donations, much of much more than a snowball's chance in Texas, right? Um, and so what is that going to all signify? So, I, I mean, you're going to have it nationalized, localized, everything in between. Um, I think the media tends to pick up on <laughs> what's, what's happening regarding Trump, right? Um, and, but then, so, for example, Joe Mankin probably is not going to be um, on the warpath against Trump quite as much as someone might be up in, um, you know, if, if there's an election California in New York State, right? Or California. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, Daniel, do, do you agree or how are you seeing sort of the landscape as a, a referendum on some of these actions, um, you know, whether it's Khashoggi related or otherwise in the, under the Trump White House? I think that, you know, when you talk to Democrats and the energy they feel, it's unprecedented. Like Tim has covered more elections than I have, but, you know, for the elections I have, you know, written about, it feels like this is a new era where no president has been hated as much as President Trump. And so Democrats feel like if they can't win in 2018, that how are they going to dismount him in uh, 2020? And so, you know, you talk about, you know, candidates like Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, that the, um, you know, that they feel like that this is a time to really gain advantage as they, you know, rally for candidates. You saw uh, you know, Barack Obama even out on the stands uh, yesterday. And so, you know, that's that's what I'm seeing on the ground. So I, I want to ask one last concluding question. And I know that um, both Tan- Daniel and, and uh, Tim have are no strangers to the pod. And this is something that we've discussed in the past, but I do think it's important um, to reflect on, especially as we go into Election Day um, and as we, you know, feel for and, and, and respect the, the, the condolences for Khashoggi's family. Um, and that is the reflection of the American identity of the modern day journalist. Um, I, I know that, um, as Tim pointed out, uh, you know, this is a still a country that values free speech, that respects dissent, that gives us all ample opportunities to convey that um, case in point, this discussion we're having today. But for the first time, or, or arguably one of the more prominent times in modern history, you don't just have Democrats and Republicans on the ballot. Um, in some instances, you have media institutions on the ballot, whether it's, um, you know, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, the, the president himself, the, the indictment, uh, and of course, countless Russian bots and fake news sites, the indictment of media continues to persist as a core part of this election and undoubtedly the 2020 election. Tim, can you tell us briefly what you think this broader um, set of uh, issues around Khashoggi, around the election means for you as a journalist? Um, maybe it doesn't change the way you report, but does it make you more mindful around the well-being uh, of your peers, the safety of, of you know, confirming uh, you know, two sources? I just want to hear a little bit about how you think about the evolution of the American identity of the journalist in recent times, or if you think it still remains you know, the fourth estate, unshaken and undeterred by any of the noise going on out there. I do think the American Fourth Estate is undeterred, but I'm sure that, uh, that uh, you, you know, my brethren who, like Daniel, who are doing this full time, as opposed to me, I dabble uh, lately in journalism. But I think, I think, of course, that the flight to quality that we've talked about has to rule the day. People have to be really doing their homework and making sure they, you know, there's always going to be errors, but making sure they're minimal, minimal, and and you know. Um, 
and dealt with quickly. And so I think people have to be as aggressive as ever and uh, holding power's feet to the fire. Uh, and as Daniel says, monitoring every little incremental development, but also keeping them in perspective. So we're no longer particularly surprised by certain things being tweeted by certain people, right? Uh, so you want to be aware of it, but really trying to not lose track of what's important, of what's really important and not get distracted from really, uh, you know, holding, holding power accountable. I would just, you know, say that uh, I think you're probably seeing increases in applications to journalism schools now because they see how exciting it is and it, and it only gets more interesting to cover. You know, the Bill Clinton administration was fascinated to cover uh, Bush, Obama, Trump. It doesn't seem like this is, you know, letting up anymore. You know, I don't know about you, but it'd be fascinating to cover a Mark Cuban presidency. Uh, get a, get someone from, you know, the billionaire class. You might do a better job. So, I think that you know, I'm very optimistic in, you know, the American journalism that is being practiced on a day-to-day -day basis. And you see the, you know, the amount of money that journalism companies are making is, you know, astounding. But that's, we should keep in mind that, you know, the security threats have never been higher. You know, I've written about how, uh, you know, newsrooms across the country have increased their security because of the threats they got. Just yesterday, uh, Fox 5, the local Fox affiliate, you know, they had to, their security guard had to shoot someone who uh, was, you know, entering their newsroom. And remember the, um, the Capitol Gazette massacre a couple months ago. And, you know, I saw an article recently about how even Maggie Haberman's kids, they ask her, are you going to be okay? Are you going to be arrested? And so that is not normal. And that's something that I think all of us would hope does not last beyond a Trump administration. I, I couldn't agree Hebdo more. Happened, and, and Charlie Hebdo happened before Trump. So it's really, you know, hostility towards those who have the ability to bring a message uh, is probably the new normal. That, that That's a great point. And of course, you're referring to, to you know, the, the satirical um, uh, magazine. Um, I, I think, though, for both Tim and Daniel, I, I, I agree with that note of optimism. I think the fact that we are able to have this conversation, um, you know, that, that we're able to have it as a country and we're able to have it internationally. And, you know, that type of dialogue is actually pushing, you know, whether it's correlative or not, um, causal or not. If, if the CIA director now goes to Turkey to try and get more facts on the ground, that's that's a world apart from where we were just a few weeks ago, when we're, where the prioritization wasn't necessarily the truth, but maybe a, a blanket affirmation of arms deals and the jobs associated with that. And that happens only because of tireless and unwavering um, examination and investigative reporting that has been on display, both um, for you, Tim, over the arc of your career, and Daniel, for you, day in and day out um, on behalf of Politico. So I just wanted to say that we really appreciate that work of journalism. I think it will remain core to the American identity. The conversation moving forward will need to be how much America wants to defend and be a vanguard of those tenets of our identity, as opposed to just kicking that can to other countries down the road. Tim Berger, uh, president and CEO of, of Plum Consulting, um, and, and Daniel Lippman with Politico. Thanks so much for joining American Enough. Thank you, Vikram. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate that.
This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.